If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Let's begin reading in verse 15. Here we go. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Am I not, or I am not he? No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God had raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Skip forward to verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let's pray. Our gracious fathers, we study your word this morning as we hear your word proclaimed to us, not in a dialogical sense, but where we sit and listen to your proclaimed word in authority over us. May we hear not just the words that are being said, but may we see the God of this Bible. 
Father, for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> and amen. Let me start here. Here's what you've got to understand about the audience of this sermon by Paul. First of all, this is our first recorded sermon of Paul's. It kind of marks, if you will, the beginning of a new era of the beginning of the church. It kind of marks, the, again, the beginning of the gospel going to those who are not Jewish, not God-fears, but instead going to the Gentiles. And so we, we know that this is likely not Paul's first sermon, but indeed his first one that was seen fit by God to record in the scriptures for us to read and to hear and to understand today. So here's what you need to understand about the audience of which Paul is speaking to. Luke, understand that Luke goes to, uh, it's important for Luke to say here at the beginning in verse 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent the message to them saying, come up and speak. But it's important what they're doing, and so it's important for us to understand the audience that Paul is speaking to. Again, he says Jewish people and those who fear God. This is not the same group described two different ways, but two separate groups of people. Those who were Jewish and feared God, and those who were not Jewish but still feared God. We've seen these categories already in the book of Acts. But here's what you've got to understand about what's happening each time these people would gather for the Sabbath in the synagogue. They would do multiple things. Let me, express, or let me explain a few of those to you. One of the things that they would do every time they gathered is they would recite the Shema. The Shema is known from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses like 4 to about 9. I'm just going to read the first two verses of the Shema. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They would recite this every Every Sabbath, they would recite, as you know, if you've taken any parenting classes here, we talk about the Shema all the time. It's a great passage used to think about parenting, because he expresses, he commands those who are hearing this to, to write certain things here and there to be remembered, and to, to train up your children, whether you are walking down the road, or you are sitting by the bed, wherever you go, to be teaching your kids this. But here's the question, why this? Why the Shema for the Jewish people? And why the Shema every week? Why, why this? Why is this so important for the Jews? Listen, it was many things, but it was certainly, at its core, a reminder that God was man's first love, but has now been abandoned for the love of creation and other things. That God was man's first love, as we saw in the garden pre-fall, but now that has changed since the fall. And see, they knew that man was created, and this is a key thing that you need to keep in mind as we work through today, that man, the, the Jews knew as they were reciting the Shema, reminding themselves every week, they knew that they were created, man was created to give God glory and to fellowship with him. To give God glory and to fellowship with him. And that's what you hear in the beginning parts of the Shema, that the Lord our God is one. Meaning, he's the one. He's the one deserving of glory. And that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What is that? That's fellowship. It's relationship. 
They knew that man was created for this, but they had abandoned this reality. That is why the Shema goes on to say, teach these words everywhere you go and in every way possible. Write them on everything so that you don't forget them. Put them on your hands. You know, we should all get tattoos, right? Put them on your doorposts and your gates. Go to Etsy and buy some stickers with those cool words and put them all over your living room. Do whatever it takes. Remember the Shema. But what words? Right? So, so the passage goes on and says in 6, 7, 8, and 9 to, to do all these activities. But what words? We've already said them. Our God is one. What's he mean? He's not like the pantheon of gods. He's not the gods that everyone else worships. There is one God. And he is one. What else is it to say? What else is it we're to be reminded of? What else were the Jews trying to ingrain into their minds and their action? Is that they were to love this God only. But not that they were to love Him as their only God that they love and then love a lot of other things along with this God. No, they were to love God only. You can see passages like this in Luke. We were called to forsake everything, to love God only. Indeed, Jesus says we're to have such an extreme love for God that, uh, that everything else looks like hatred compared to our love for God. It's not that we hate other things and we, we are mean to these things and don't care for other things, but that we, our love for them looks pale and weak. Indeed, it looks like hatred compared to the supreme love in which we have for God. And that's what the call here is in Deuteronomy as well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so that's what the Shema is meant to do for the Jews who are now listening to Paul. Love God supremely, for He is the only God. But what else did they do on the Sabbath? They would spend seven years working through the law, or also known as the Pentateuch, the, the books of the, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Over the course of seven years, they would basically cycle back through and work back through these texts. Then they would work through the prophets as well. Generally over the course of seven years, they would work through the prophets. Why? Why were they working through the prophets? Why were they working through the law? At the very least, the law reminded them of who God was and what He required of them. It was God's grace to His people to say, this is who I am, this is what I require. The history contained within books, particularly like the books of Exodus, or the book of Exodus, where they recount the Israelites' unfaithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Think of stories like the parting of the Red Sea, or the deliverance from Egypt prior to that. Why would they read the prophets? Why do you think they would want to recite the prophets in continual fashion? Because the prophets speak of a day when God will send a Messiah to rescue these people. That one day, 
this, we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him in fellowship forever. But we're not doing that. We have sin, we have brokenness, we pursue other things. But the prophets remind us that God will send a Messiah and He will rescue us. Again, they understood that they were created to bring glory to God and fellowship with Him, but this wasn't possible until the promised Messiah came. And so the Jews were rehearsing this every week. Every week. Sounds pretty similar to the things that we try to do, right? We rehearse the cross every week. And we rehearse future glory every week. Why? Because we know we're not faithful, but the God who has saved us is. Again, they understood that they were not doing this, but this was possible when the Messiah would come. That day, they looked forward to. And so this is what Luke is describing that is going on in the synagogue just prior to, to Paul's sermon. This is the context in which Paul now begins to teach. So now they turn to Paul, who was likely dressed as a rabbi, and said to him, speak. And Paul begins his sermon. Paul says, I'll give you here in summary fashion, understand that there's two main characters in Paul's sermon here. The first one is God. God is mentioned, God did this, God chose this, God accounted for this, God dealt with or or fixed this, or, or God put up with them, I love that phrase, God put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. God did all of these things. That God is the first of the two main characters in the story. He says that God chose our fathers. He's speaking of Abraham here. God made us a great nation while in Egypt. What's unique about Paul's recounting here of Egypt is that he made them a great nation even in the midst of slavery. Even in the midst of oppression, he was multiplying this nation. He says that God, again, God put up with them for 40 years. He's saying to the Jews, God put up with us for 40 years in the wilderness. Then he says that God gave us the land of Canaan as an inheritance, even having to take over seven other groups of people to have this land that was due us. And he says that God gave us judges to deliver us from evil and brokenness. But as we understand, as the Jews would have understood, as Paul's speaking, that these judges were not delivering them ultimately in the way that they needed to be delivered, but temporarily, even symbolically. And God gave us kings, he is saying to them. The first one is not quite the one that uh, God is pointing ultimately to, or that would use to point ultimately to the future, but then he gave them David. And Paul recounts how this David is a man after God's own heart. What? David commits an affair with Bathsheba and has her husband killed to cover it up. And how is this a man after God's own heart? Read a psalm like Psalm 51 and you'll see why David is called a man after God's own heart. He was a repentant king. He was not a king that was perfect. He was a king that was repentant. That is what he was known for. But he was also known ultimately to point forward to something else. You see, 
all of history, as Paul is recounting this for the Jews, would have been incredibly bitter and sweet all at the same time. The Jew heard this. God is faithful and good to His nation, Israel. But in all of this history, it is riddled with our evil and disobedience. It all pointed to their need for a rescuer, a Messiah, and God's promise to bring one. And it's at this point, understand, in this point in Paul's sermon, that the listeners are saying, David! David! I, yes, David! We know that the Messiah is supposed to come from David. And I can imagine in their minds at this point, they're like, yes! Yes! But let me pause for a second. I ask you this question. Where is, where is history headed? Where is all of history headed to? What is life all about? Where are we going? Is history simply headed towards nothingness? Some believe we just get up each day, seek pleasure, and when we die, it's just all over? Is it just done at that point? Or is history just a series of cycles? Sure, the scenery changes, humans come and go, but history doesn't really go anywhere. It just moans on and on and on. Or is history headed towards me? I think this is probably where many of us in this room live. History is headed towards my happiness. My happiness right now and my happiness in the future. Is history all happening so I can make my way to heaven? Is history happening so that I can make my way to heaven? You know, I'm not really in love with seeing my Savior. I just don't really want to go to hell. Where is history heading toward? Listen, the average Jew at this time would have known this. History was headed towards restoration. History is headed towards restoration. God would be glorified through His people. And God would have fellowship with this people. And they knew that the Messiah came through David. That one day He would come. And so I can imagine them getting pretty excited at this point in Paul's sermon. And then Paul says this. Of this man's offspring... Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, right? a Messiah, Jesus, as he promised. What is, what is, what is Paul doing? Well, first of all, he, he certainly didn't give them the word that they were probably looking for. But Paul is saying to them, listen, O Israel... This God who is one is nothing, is no one other than Jesus, the Messiah. And he shows them that Jesus, he account, recounts history to show them and to show us that Jesus is the climax of history. He's the culmination of history. He's the point to which it is, it is all moving toward. You say, what do you mean the, the point? Meaning, 
that in the end he will be exalted as the glorious one for all the world to see. And so all of history, all of history is moving by God's sovereign hand in ways These people are moving this way. God uses sin this way. God uses tragedy this way. God glorifies himself in this way. In all of these events, God is orchestrating, just as he did with Israel, so that in the end, Jesus is exalted as the glorious one. And that's what Paul just said to the Jews. That's why he recounted their history. He went through their history to show them Boom, this happened, this happened, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this, and God brought us Jesus. He's the point of history. The brokenness restored, the justice given, and the people rescued to be God's people. It all points to Jesus, our Savior. That's what Paul is saying to them. He is saying to us certainly as well. Just as a short insert here, do you want to make sense of the past, make sense of your own past. Human history in general, or your own individual history, or the history of your struggling neighbor, or your broken classmate. It all serves. The past all serves. The future will all indeed serve the purpose of pointing to Christ. I get it. That's not comforting, comforting to all people. But to those who know how glorious Christ is, it is comforting too. That's part of Paul's point. Part of Paul's point is, this is glorious. And if you knew the scriptures, you would understand. But here's the question that the Jews would have been asking at this point. All right, so Paul, we get it. We know the history. We recount it every seven years in cycles. We got that. We know who Jesus is. We've heard about him. We know the stories. But how could Jesus be the Messiah if he was killed? How could Jesus be our Redeemer if He was killed? How could He lead us to sacrificing and and making ourselves right with God if indeed He is dead? How could He lead us to establish a new kingdom if He is dead? How can He sit on your throne, the throne of David, for all of eternity if He is dead? Paul says in verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him. Who's Him? Jesus. Because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. Just in brief, what's he saying? He's saying that, Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, the Jews primarily, and the rulers over the Jews, particularly the Pharisees and such, because they did not recognize Him. They did not recognize who? Jesus. Did they see Jesus? They knew who Jesus was, right? Like they knew that this this guy right here, his name's Jesus. What does he mean he did not recognize Him? 
He didn't recognize him as the one the scriptures pointed to. That's what he means. Did not understand him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. And he says to them, you fulfilled these prophecies by condemning Jesus. Here's the main point. Again, this couldn't be the Messiah. He's dead. The Jews, why could this, this can't be the Messiah. He's not alive. I want to pause here and ask us a few questions or make a few statements. Many of us in this room know Jesus, but we don't know the Messiah. For many of us in this room, he supposedly died for our sin, but that's it. Not that that's not a big deal. That is a big deal. Listen, what happens here is that the Jews, listen, were faithful to their religious activities. These weren't bad activities, by and large, they were great activities. They were faithful to their religious activities. They said their prayers before every meal. They were faithful to Paul Tripp's book on parenting. They served in children's ministry and read every blog by Desiring God. They even read their Bibles. Imagine that. And yet, hear me clearly, Jesus could not be their Messiah because he was dead. Here's my fear. Here's my fear for us, even in this room. That we could hear the truths of the scriptures all the time. That we could do all these faithful religious activities. That we could even describe Jesus maybe even better than most people. And yet, Jesus not be your Messiah. That if he walked across this room right now, you would not recognize him for who he is. He could work in your life in a certain way, and yet you could not recognize it for who he is, what he's doing. For some of you, he's only an academic exercise. It doesn't mean he's your Messiah. For some of, some of us, he's just a neat thought for that emotional moment we want to grab a hold of to make us feel good. For some of us, he's only found when we can spend hours reading our Bible. Sure, the Jews recognized, they, they, they knew that this is Jesus. They knew that what Jesus claimed, many of them even are willing to admit that he was a good teacher, that he cared for people well. And yet Paul's point here is that you saw him, but you didn't recognize him for who he was. I think much of American supposed Christianity is filled with people who know lots about Jesus, but don't know him for who he really was. 
They've heard countless sermons and read countless books and, and even maybe read their Bible a few times. And yet, don't know who Jesus really is. A couple diagnostic questions here to think through. How do I know if my supposed Savior is really indeed the Messiah? Let me ask you this question. Do you see your sinfulness in increasing measure every day? Every day. Do your sin, like, you don't, not necessarily that you see sin increasing, but that you see your sin in increasing fashion. It's more clear. It's becoming more clear to you with every passing day. Because here's the reality. If it's Jesus that is your Messiah, He's not afraid to tell you when you're sinning. But if it's the Messiah of your creation, He might tell you a few things here and there, but He's not going to work on you like this. But then second, then second, they, they go in a pair. Both two sides of the same coin, and they have to go together. Is that do you then cling to your Savior for rescue more tightly every day? Do you treasure Christ more, t- more intensely each day? Oh, I talk to Jesus all the time. Oh, I know I'm a bad person. But let me ask you a question. But do you grow more skeptical of yourself and more trusting of Christ every day? If not, you may know who Jesus is. But if you would allow me a metaphor, he's still dead to you. You think, I've got my ticket to heaven. I've got my ticket on the glory train. But you don't know who the Messiah is. I mean, some of us, here's the deal, we have to be careful because some of us, mistake growth in religious activity for growth in loving Christ. You see, listen, the Jews knew the prophecies. They knew the promises. They thought they knew what they were looking for. Listen, they even knew Jesus but he couldn't be their Messiah. He was dead. Again, they knew Jesus, but they didn't know the Messiah. They missed it. All of God's promises, again, they're rehearsing these every week. They're hearing the Scriptures week in and week out. All of God's promises to rescue them from their sin, to enable them to glorify God and all that they do and enjoy His presence forever. And He was in front of their faces and they missed it. How many times do we read the Scriptures at home? Do we hear a sermon? Do we read something about the Scriptures? Do we hear the truth of the Scriptures from the 
a brother or sister, and we miss Jesus in the midst of it. We miss our Messiah in the truth in front of us. Now look what Paul says. Look what Paul says in verse 28 through 29. Get back to the sermon. And though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. What's, what's Paul's point? Is Paul just trying to be harsh on them for executing Jesus? No, that's, not, that's not Paul's point. He's not just trying to pick on them. Hey, you dummies, you shouldn't have executed Jesus. No, Paul understands that the execution of Jesus indeed had to happen. He was, they were fulfill, fulfilling prophecies. So that's not Paul's point. Here's what Paul was saying. The Savior who is dead indeed died... They found in him no guilt worthy of death. And if he didn't die then for his own guilt, then whose guilt did he die for? He died for you. That's Paul's point. Paul's point is, listen guys, you you shouldn't have crucified. No, that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is he died without guilt. He died for you and he died for me. He died for us. But Paul, but Paul, listen, if he died, how can he be the Messiah? Paul says in verse 30 to the Jewish listeners, but God raised him from the dead. Listen, God raised him from the dead. Listen, church, Jesus could have lived the perfect life in fellowship with God, the perfect Israelite, the perfect Jew. Jesus could have tried to die then for people's sins, but if he wasn't resurrected, then he couldn't have been the Messiah. So therefore, let us keep looking for our Messiah. Let us keep looking for our salvation. And so for many of us, Jesus died for our sins, or so we think. And now, let us move on looking for our Messiah. The extent of our gospel understanding stops at redemption. He died for my sins, and and then we just kind of move on from there. We kind of add some truth here and there to our religious lives. But we're not really looking for the Messiah who died supposedly for our sins. We're looking for a Messiah indeed, but it's not the right one. Maybe my Messiah is found in my job or found in my kids or in my ability to exercise power and influence or to become a master or whatever I set my hands to. These things make me feel saved and redeemed and secured. And it's a good thing that Jesus died for my sins. But Paul says he's alive. He's alive. Do you know at the very least what that means? That means that he has a role now and a role in your life now. 
The whole point of Christ was not just to die on the cross. If God raised him to life now, he has a purpose now. And if Jesus, any purpose that Jesus has, is a purpose that impacts you and I. Verse 32, Paul says this, And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, right? You see what Paul did here? He chose the fathers, and then let me recount history, and then he says what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Listen, the resurrection is fulfillment of all God's promises. That's Paul's point. The resurrection is fulfillment of all God's promises. Yes, the cross matters absolutely. Yes, his righteous life matters absolutely. Yes, the virgin birth matters. Yes, being born, eh, being born in the line of David matters. Yes, all these things matter, but they are for nothing if he had not been raised. That's why Paul says, this he has fulfilled. These promises he has fulfilled. Not just in all of these activities, but in the resurrection. So Jesus is indeed the climax of history because he is the fulfillment of God's promises. And the resurrection says so. You say, okay, well what promises? What are you talking about? I mean, we could spend all day looking at God's promises and how they're fulfilled. And, and I, w- I would love to. I got to study them. I would encourage you to. I'm going to pick one particular one here in e- Ezekiel 11. Verse 19 through 20. It says this. God speaking. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them I'm sorry, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Do you remember the Shema we talked about earlier? The Lord your God is one. What's he say here? I will be your God and you will be my people. What's he prophesying? He's prophesying that there will come a day where I will be your God, you will be my people. The the Shema will come true. I will give them a, a new heart, he says here in Ezekiel. A working heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart that will will be capable of loving me supremely. One that can indeed love God with all its might and all its strength. Again, the resurrection says so many things, but in this context, it at the very least says, Jesus is the heart of flesh that obeys God perfectly in fellowship. Jesus' heart does this. And His death pays for your unrighteousness and mine, and it does so sufficiently, because He spends no time on the cross paying for the sin of His own heart. 
He was guiltless. And what does the resurrection say to these acts of Christ? That God approves. My son did his job. My son completed the task. You say, what task? Bearing the wrath for your sin and mine. And he did it sufficiently, completely, thoroughly. His bodily resurrection then paves the way for your new heart and mine and our new resurrection bodies later. Then Paul says in verse 31, And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Very briefly here, the resurrection is fulfillment of all God's promises, but we have to understand that the way they taught and understood the resurrection, meaning the way we should teach and understand the resurrection, is that it was factual. It actually happened. And you say, okay, yeah, that's your presupposition so far in this entire sermon. Well, now I want to make it explicit here for us that, that the resurrection wasn't just a wonderful symbol. That's part of our problem, is that many of us in this room even treat the resurrection as, okay, well, that's just some cool thing to give me a little bit of encouragement. Yes, Jesus is still alive. Woohoo! We get to celebrate that one day a year. Great. But they taught it as fact. Paul is telling them, we are witnesses to this. It wasn't just a symbol. It wasn't something just to create a warm fuzzy in us every once in a while. Paul's point here is that if this is indeed factual, then it changes things. If he indeed was raised from the grave, then he is indeed the fulfillment of all God's promises. And all God's promises change everything. Listen, the resurrection, if it changes things, it changes, as Keller calls, call it, uh, it's, a, it's paradigm shattering. It changes our worldview. It changes our paradigm, the way we understand life. Indeed, the resurrection is inconvenient. It ruins our ways of life. Say, how so? Because you and I have life all figured out. We know what we want. We know what is good, we think. We know what is just, we think. We know how to spend our money and how to spend our time. And, and then we just go after it. And the resurrection says that we got that all wrong. That what it takes to make us right with God and to glorify God and to fellowship with Him, that we got that all wrong. The resurrection says that Jesus was good enough, but you're not. It says that His life was satisfactory and yours is not. The resurrection says that you don't have enough power to save yourself, but God does. The resurrection says that you don't have enough mastery over your life, but Jesus did and does. The resurrection says that you can avoid hard conversations now, but you can't avoid the ultimate hard conversation before the Father, the one that He is having on behalf of those who have placed their trust in His redeeming work. 
the resurrection says to that point, you need an advocate before the Father pleading your case because the defense that you have worked up is appalling. And here's the problem, though. Again, some of us believe that Jesus died for our sin, but we live functionally as though the resurrection doesn't matter. Colossians 3, 1-4 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, what's he speaking of there? Raised with Christ, meaning the resurrection happened and you too have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Again, what's he referring to there? The resurrection. Verse 1 is the resurrection. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. If you go back and read the end of chapter 2, he's talking about this continuing in the indulgence of the flesh. And what's he, what's he, where's Paul go in Colossians to say, first of all, you should not indulge the flesh, and here's how you don't indulge the flesh, and here's what it'll look like when you're never indulging the flesh again. He says it's the resurrection. Where do you look to to stop indulging the flesh? The fact that I've been raised with Christ because of His resurrection, I can be raised with Christ. Listen, if you forget the resurrection, then you will forget that you've been raised with Christ. And if you forget that you've been raised with Christ, you will continue indulging the flesh. If you indulge the flesh, you have forgotten that you have been raised to new life with Christ. And that's what he says here. Set your mind on the things above. Why? What's he talking about? Set your mind on heavenly things, on the right things, on the good things. Who is that? God, the Father, from whom all good things come. Man, I should have just preached Colossians 3, 1 through 4. I need to move on. I only had one line right there. We got to keep going. Here's the reality. The Jews knew the scriptures, and they knew very well who Jesus was. Many even believing that he was a good man and a good teacher. But even though they knew all the paintings and portraits of Jesus, of the Messiah that the scriptures had given them, he was as good as dead to them. But to believe the resurrection... If they were to believe the resurrection as fact, meant that they would have to believe that he was the Messiah. The truth is for you and I that if you don't believe in the resurrection, then in reality, he could not have died for your sins either. First Corinthians 15, verse 14, he says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and what else is in vain? Your faith. Your faith. 
Here's what the text is saying. If you don't believe in a resurrected Savior, then you don't have a Savior at all. And I know, I know, I know you're saying, oh, I believe in a resurrected Savior. But here's the question. Do you live as though you have a resurrected Savior? Or do you live as though my sin was taken care of in the past, and now I just kind of do some religious things going forward? Do you live as though you have a resurrected Savior? In the power of the resurrection, are you walking in humility as you grow in knowing your sinfulness? Does the recounting of your history of your life point increasingly to your need and the gloriousness of a Savior? Each day, do you cling to and treasure Christ more because in His resurrection, He advocates on your behalf before the Father, having paid the price for your sins? How do you live in the power of the resurrection? What is, let me ask, answer that question. What impact does it have on you when you think about the fact I'm sinful. But Jesus was raised to life. God affirming and approving His work on my behalf. And now His role is before the Father advocating for me this wretched sinner. What does that do? You know what it does to me? It gives me power. It gives me power to say, no, I will not indulge my flesh there. No, I will not worship this idol here. Why? Why would I? That's the gospel. Why would I? Why would I when I have this? The fruit of someone living, believing in the resurrection is life change. But not just people who look more moral. Yes, that is part of it. But people who love Christ more thorough. Some of us read the scriptures, but we can't find Christ. Let me pause here for a second. Speak to kind of two separate groups of people. First group. Some of you right now need to realize I've been going to church my whole life or maybe I've not been going to church for very long but I don't think right now that I am a follower of Jesus. I think it's a cool idea. I think it's a nice idea. I'm actually believing in some of the facts that, that the scriptures talk about. But I don't know him as my Messiah as the one who died for me. And to you, let me encourage you. Confess your sins to God. Meaning, God, I am a sinner. And believe and trust that Jesus died for those sins. And that God raised Him. He raised Him. To be your advocate before the Father right now. And He is a sure advocate. He will never, ever fail. 
Second group. As I was reminded a couple weeks from someone speaking, they said, every time you hear the gospel, doesn't it become more sweeter to you? Some of you are saying, oh, I love Christ, but my sin is so strong, how can I ever overcome it? I was feeling that way the past couple days. To you, to you the resurrection says this, one day darkness will be no more. Light, goodness, and glory shall be our home forever when we see our resurrected King. You see, for both groups of people, but for those only who place their faith in the work of Christ, for you, the resurrection is hope for the future. Acts 13, verse 38 through 39, Paul says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Very quickly here, we were all slaves under the law. I don't have time to, ex- to expound on this greatly, but the law exposes our complete inability to make ourselves right with God. It exposes how, how inept we are, but then it cannot do anything to rescue us. In that sense, we are slaves to the law. But the resurrection is hope for the future because the resurrection says we can be right with God. Because His payment was accepted, you can be certain about the future. If it's based on you and I and the certainty of our righteous acts, then you and I could never be certain of any kind of future with the Father other than the certainty of hell. But we can be certain of hope if indeed the resurrection happened. Quoting Luther here, says this, If you are suffering or going through dark times and not absolutely sure that all your sins are paid for, then the certain of the future is no consolation. But if we can be certain about the future, again, what, what does that do? It gives us power. It gives us courage. It gives us perseverance to to do what we should do now. It gives us the right motivation. So the resurrection is hope for the future because we can be right with God and we can know this for certain. But then secondly, the resurrection says the future is more than you and I could ever imagine. The resurrection says you and I have no clue how glorious the future will be for those who love God and have been called according to His purpose. Like this phrase uh, that Keller, Timothy Keller gave, he says, when we think about life, there's this seeming irreversibility of life. Uh, 
He quoted the poem Edgar by Edgar Allan Poe with the raven on the doorframe saying, Nevermore, 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 nevermore. What's the point? Listen, every day that goes by, as we see our sinfulness ever before us, we look back and say, I wish I could have those moments back. I don't know if you ever do that. I do that often. I wish I could, I wouldn't have said that to my child. Nevermore can I fix that situation. I wish I would have studied more in school. Nevermore, because there's nothing I can do to fix that. I wish I would have learned the scriptures better during this season of my life. Nevermore can I do that. And it, each day, each passing day, it seems like death is rushing upon me faster and faster. Everything is going and we can never get any of it back. But the resurrection says no to nevermore. The resurrection is the restoration of things lost. I was encouraged by this. I don't only get my body back, but I get the body that I wish I would have had. I don't only get a clear thinking mind, but one that with greater ability than ever before can behold the glory of God. I get that in the resurrection. Relationships like you've never experienced before. The resurrection says no to the nevermore. The resurrection is reversible of irreversibility, Keller says. This changes the way we live. It changes us. It has to. If not, then it's just not sinking in. I pray that the Spirit does what only He can do in your heart, in your mind. Listen, if there is hope for my future because my Savior was resurrected and not because of my doings or lack of doings, then oh, joy. If the resurrection happened, then I can own my own sin. And when I own my sin, I can confess before the Father and before others. If the resurrection happened, then, then I can thank the Father that He has raised His Son to be my advocate before the Almighty Judge. If the resurrection happened, then one day I will bring glory to God by fellowshipping with Him forever. Indeed, all my wretchedness will be gone. All the brokenness of this world will be fixed all the rage of sin inside me and outside will be indeed never more. Ask yourself this question in all your religious activities. Do I only know Jesus the man? Or do I know Jesus the resurrected Messiah? 1 John 3, 2, I leave you with this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So this Jesus that was resurrected, he's saying to these people, we've not yet seen him in this resurrected body yet. But when, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. It all will be restored. It'll all be fixed. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as the glorious Messiah that he is. Let's pray. Gracious Father, kind, merciful, perfect. Father, the rescuer of our souls, the redeemer of our hearts. Father, the the one who takes our crooked paths and makes them straight. The one who seeks after us who, who want nothing to do with you. The one who gives us a heart of flesh. One that beats. We could not choose you if you had not first given those who have chosen you and will choose you this new heart of flesh. Father, I You are worthy of our praise. You are glorious. You are all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise. Father, I I pray that we would not just be Christians who believe in a supposed cross that apparently pays for the price of our sins, but that we are Christians, that true Christians indeed are those who also believe in the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, everything else is in vain. 